one time, uh, <clears throat> I think it was Chuck Swindoll was telling his story. This is Chuck Swindoll or maybe Charles Stanley, one of those guys back east that has, you know, a big 10,000-member church, and, and his son was kind of coming up to him, and he said, Dad, do you think, do you think that the devil ever goes to church on Sunday? Pastor goes. Yes, I think he does. Yes. And I'm pretty sure I've sat next to him a time or two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As only Chuck Swindoll can say it. Yeah. There you go. Oh my Our scripture this morning is a very famous one, very familiar one out of Ephesians chapter 6. So if you want to go there, don't worry, it will be up on the board for those of you who did not bring your Bible or do not have one. In fact, if you don't have one, we'll get you one. But in this day and age, most people have them on one of these, so... That's fair game. But Heavenly Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray you would open up our hearts to receive yes, your voice. Yes, this isn't just me talking. God, as I'm talking, you're talking to us. And I pray we would just clear out the clutter right now. The football game, the shopping list, the laundry, everything. Just clear it out right now so that we could hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Out of Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes, beginning in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. To continue to stand. Uh, knowing that the enemy is a dirty fighter, a little cheap, cheap shotter, uh, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to, I, this is a four-point message. Actually, I think it's a five-point. No, it's four-point uh, but the point is, I'm only going to preach the first two today. And then I'm going to review and finish it next Sunday. So the enemy ain't going to win this Sunday. You know, Amen. For everybody Amen. who's sick, let's take a moment right now and yes, pray for them. Heavenly Father, for all of those who are ill, particularly uh, baby Nolan, who's up uh, in Children's Hospital right now fighting for his life. God, for all those people who texted, all the, you know, fevers and all that kind of stuff, God, we pray in the name of Jesus, you would make them well. And we ask this based on the authority of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. All right. <laughs> My first point is this. I can't believe I actually have to make it, but in this day and age, you really do have to make it. The first thing is this. Point number one, there is a devil. There is a Satan. There is a demonic realm. Uh, a few years ago, about 15 years ago now, uh, I was driving from Seattle to Vancouver, Canada. And you have to cross the border into Canada, obviously, to get in. And so we're at the border, and uh, we get through very quickly, which is unusual for, for the Canadian border. But we get through very quickly. I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is amazing how quickly we were able to get through the border. And all of a sudden, about five minutes later, I get a call on my cell phone. Hey, are you stuck at the border? No, I'm not stuck at the border. I got right through. Oh, my goodness, you'll never believe it. They caught the terrorists 
at the Canadian border just now. I'm thinking to myself, Keith, that was just there. And it was kind of a reminder that in this world, we are surrounded by people who may not be our friends. We are surrounded by people who may do us harm. For about the last 17 years now, we, our country has been engaged in a war, right? We call it the war on terror, right? For many of us, that war on terror may be from someone we know who served in Iraq or Afghanistan or somebody who's part of Homeland Security or, uh, or some sort of uh, you know, law enforcement, and we hear the stories and stuff like that. But for many of us, it's like the war has been going on, but we don't really feel like we're at war. Not like when it was World War II or you know, the Revolutionary War. Obviously, most, everybody felt the effects of the war going on. But for the last 17 years, if, I, if you were to tell my kids, you, know, you grew up in one of the longest times of war in American history, a lot of my kids would go, we're at war? You're kidding me, we're at war? What, who's fighting who? You know, I mean, it's almost as if there's this war going on and we don't even realize it. And that is exactly how we can often have with the spiritual war that's going on. There's a spiritual war that has been going on for all of human existence. And we can a lot of times become largely dull to it, not even recognizing that it's going on, not even realizing that a lot of the suffering and messy stuff that happens to us is because of the devil attacking people. And so there's this sort of perspective that we need to start with, that there is a devil. Satanism, outright Satanism and demonism is on the rise throughout the world. Now I'm not just talking about secularism, where people are just not believing God or not believing anything. I mean, you know, direct specific worship of the dark angel Satan is on the rise throughout all of the world. And when I was in high school, I remember I invited a friend over, and he was into something called Wicca. Anybody heard of that? He was into Wicca, and uh, and he always you know he was this guy that always had like black mascara on his eyes. I used to make fun of him, but anyway, you know. Uh, and uh, I mean, I, you know, I always say like you know you, you dress like Halloween every day for school. What what gives, you know? But we, we were drawing together. I mean, he was a friend. You know, I, I invited him over. He was going to spend it at my house. We were going to have some fun. And, you know, he had this necklace with a little, little dragon claw that had a crystal in it, you know. And I always used to tell him, you know, man, that is the dumbest looking thing. Can you take that off, you know? And, and he never really scared me until he had spent the night at my house. And in the middle of the night, I mean, I'm woken up to this crash. And, and I, had, I had two twin beds in my room. I slept in one, obviously, he slept in the other. And he is writhing all over. <laughs> He's just like freaking out in the middle of the night. So I like, now I am a little freaked out. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to leave this alone. I couldn't sleep the rest of the I'm watching him, you know. And we woke up the next morning. I, I told him, I said, man, what happened last night? He goes, you knew what happened. I said, he goes, did you see something? I go, he goes, I had nightmares all night. Horrific nightmares. And so finally, you know, I'm like, you know what? We need to come to youth group. We need to come to church. And something's going wrong. And so I bring him to church. And right in the middle of praise and worship, he just starts freaking out. I won't even tell you what he did because it'll freak all of you out. He just starts freaking out. And I'm like, 
Because I put you at the youth pastor. He's kind of looking at me like, great night to bring up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Tom. You, Tom. You know? yeah. <laughs> so him and the senior, he calls the senior pastor. They've seen this before. I've never seen a demonized person. I've never seen an evil spirit manifest itself out of a person before. It was all new to me. And so they take him to another room, and they pray for him. And man, I tell you, the next day when he's at school, completely different, completely changed. Just seeing the power of the name of Jesus free somebody. You know, in fact, the next day at school, he gives me the necklace <laughs> with the dragon and the crystal, you know. And, and so after all that had happened, yeah, I, I kind of take the necklace, you know. Thank you, you know. Walk about 10 feet, throw it away. You know? I don't want anything to do with that thing. In America, about 10% of the population, about 10% of the population, about 30 million people, have either experienced or witnessed a demonic possession or deliverance. Obviously, I am one of them. There has, over the last 15 years, been a 300% rise in priests, pastors, and Christian laymen who perform exorcisms and drive evil spirits out of people. And while the devil can often seem in our greater culture is you know, nothing more than a cartoon character, right? Nothing more than a Halloween costume. Nothing more than... You know, just kind of some, almost like Loki, you know, the god of mischief. You know, he's just this kind of mischievous little gremlin running around, you know, poking at people's lives. The fact is, the Bible says he is real. He is in the Bible, all over the Bible. And he is not our friend. He is very much our enemy. And one of the things that when I was in seminary, I remember they said, the best spiritual warfare manual you'll ever read is an ancient book by a Chinese general, Sun Tzu, called The Art of War. Anybody ever heard of that or read that? The Art of War. And in The Art of War, he lays out three principles that are sort of the thesis for the book. And his first principle is this. If you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know who you are and you know your enemy, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know who you are in Christ and who the enemy is, you near not, need not fear the result of a hundred encounters with the enemy. You will win. Yeah. Number two, he says, if you know yourself but not your enemy, for every victory there is also a defeat. The enemy will let you think you've won, only to realize he left behind something to metastasize and grow a month later, a year later, ten years later. And number three, if you do not know the enemy and you do not know yourself, you will succumb to every battle. Great stuff written many, many years ago by someone who never realized they would be giving a great strategy in understanding how to deal with the devil. The Bible also gives us some background of the devil. In Ezekiel chapter 28, and it's going to be over here on the sides. Please follow along with me because it's kind of long. But I really wanted to give you what does the Bible say about this person who is not our friend and very much against our lives. In Ezekiel 28, Ezekiel says, uh, he's writing prophetically as he sees into the spirit. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom. When Satan was actually the archangel Lucifer... When he was still on God's side, this is what he's saying. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He was wise and a beautiful sight to see. Ezekiel says, you were in Eden. 
Well, we know that because he switched and became the serpent, right, and tempted Eve. And that's why we're all going through the mess we're going through. Adam and Eve, sorry, babies. And <laughs> you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, diamonds, rubies. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. And on the day, on the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. How would you like to have the devil as your guardian angel? <laughs> Not me. Uh, for so I ordained you. You were walking on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Satan had inner. Satan was not just some angel God made. You're talking about a being that was very close to the complete and utter glory of God. He was created to be able to come in to this kind of setting. It says, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty. Anybody here last week we talked about narcissists? Narcissists could very much be Lucifer. Uh, from among the fiery stones, your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. And then Isaiah chapter 14 really tells us what actually happened in that moment. Uh, it says here in verse 12, How you have fallen, this talk about Satan, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down from the earth, you who once laid low the nations. For you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Yeah, that's bold. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Remember what he said to Eve when he tempted Eve? No, no, no. If you eat the forbidden fruit, you will become like God. See, not only did Satan first have the thought, I will become like God. Now he wants to get all of creation to join in with him. So that there is no separation between creator and creator. The created become equal to the creator. And that's rebellion. And that's wrong. And that's the sin that drove Satan out of heaven and separates us from God even to this day. Satan's position and role in the universe. Here's a few things that the Bible ascribes to him. In John chapter 12, verse 31, it says that Satan is the prince of this world. What does that mean? It means he's in charge of evil men and women, or men and women who, are, who want to continue in rebellion against God. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it says, he is the prince of the power of the air. A lot of people really confuse this. It's a very simple interpretation. When the Bible says that the devil is the prince over the power of the air, it's not that you're breathing in Satan. It's that he is also in charge of evil spirits. Spirits. The word spirit is the same word we get air from. Right? So he's the, he's the prince over the human beings that follow him. He is the prince over the angelic beings that follow him. In 1 John 9, 5, 1 John 5, 19, says Satan is the global ruler of the world system. Humanism, hedonism, all those isms uh, sprung from Satan's influence. In Matthew 12, 26, Satan has his own kingdom. In Matthew 25, Satan has his own angels. 
In 2 Corinthians 4, Satan is called a god. He got what he wanted. Satan is called the god of this age. He has religions and worshipers. In Mark chapter 4 and in John 10, it's very clear he is a thief. And I've seen this so many times where I'm telling somebody about Jesus, telling somebody about the love of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're just starting to warm up, they're starting to believe, and all of a sudden, no, 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 I don't want that. I can almost see it. The enemy just coming in and removing that seed. No, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give my, I don't want to give my life over to the Lord. And so that you can, it's very much his role to do that. Now here's the point: while the devil is real, Satan is not God's opposite. There's God who is all power, and Satan who is limited power. In fact, a better way to say it is he is the archangel, angel Michael's opposite. That, that, that's the opposite that Satan is. But he is not God's opposite. My second point is this. He has a plan. First, there is a devil. And second, he has a plan. And the first strategy is this. To promote indifference. The de first devil strategy of the devil is try to get people to think you don't exist. Because if you don't exist in people's minds, you can get in there and do all sorts of things, and people will never blame the devil for it. They'll never think that the enemy is there because they don't believe in the devil. Now, you may say, oh, man, that's, yeah, everybody believes in the devil. Not so true. In the year 2017, which was just a few weeks ago, right? In the year 2017, they did a survey of Christians. Now, I imagine if you're not a Christian, that percentage of people who don't believe in the devil is probably quite high. This is in a percentage of Christians, people who already believe in a spiritual realm, who already are trusting Jesus with their eternal soul. And it says in a study among Christians, the question was posed, or the statement was made Satan is not a living being, but merely a symbol of evil. 40% of Christians agree with that statement. 19% agreed somewhat. Where are we at now? Is that what's 40 plus 19? 59%. So we're at 60% of Christians who either disagree, or I mean agree, or agree somewhat that Satan is not even real, but just a symbol. Right? And it says here later that. 8% didn't even know what they believed about Christians. So we have nearly two-thirds of people who believe in Jesus, believe in the spiritual realm, attributing that Satan is not even a real being, but just a symbol of evil. Two-thirds. I would say, if I were the devil, strategy number one is working quite well. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14, says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. You know, there were two six-year-olds once who were debating the existence of the devil. And one time after Sunday school, the Sunday school teacher was talking about how there was a devil. And the six-year-olds come out and they go, you know what, do you think there's a devil or not? And the one six-year-old goes, no, I don't think there's a devil. To be honest with you, I think that the devil is a lot like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. In the end, the devil just turns out to be your dad. Oh, <laughs> he was trying to make a funny point there. But you know, maybe that's, you, you gotta, you gotta, 
That's where a lot of people can begin to think strategy number two, to promote ignorance. The first one is indifference, to get people to think, I'm not even there. And the devil is amazingly subtle when it comes to that. To promote, proliferate ignorance, it's essentially that the, the devil is so successful when he's working in our lives, we don't even know that it's him that is working it. We don't even sense that it's him that's doing it. That's how masqueraded he is. Remember in 2 Corinthians it says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. It looks good. It looks like it's God. It looks, it looks like it's what you're supposed to do. He's very crafty. He doesn't say, go rob a bank. Instead he comes in and he says, you deserve more money. You work so hard. You've got nothing to show for it. Why don't you cheat on your taxes? Get more money. You deserve more money. Those insurance companies, try to figure out a way to rip off that insurance because they got gobs of money. You got nothing. He doesn't say go rob a bank. He starts building up our what we deserve and what we desire. He doesn't say go cheat on your wife. That would be way too obvious and way too blatant. You go, oh, there's Satan. No. He says, it's just one little kiss. It's just one little stray. No, nobody. No, you can hurt nobody. And look, looks like she wants you a lot more than your own wife does. Come on. See, the enemy's crafty. He creates these private conversations in our head where we don't even know it's him. We think it's us. And that is the ignorance. In 2 Peter 2.1, Peter says, False prophets are also among the people, and false teachers as well, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, that's teachings, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. He's not in a red suit and a pitchfork. He's subtle. He was the voice that said, Jesus, Fasting for 40 days. You're hungry, Jesus. Command these stones to become bread. Surely God wants you to eat. Surely God wants you to use your power so that you can feed yourself. Come on, Jesus. You deserve that. The translation, Jesus, go against God's will to feed your flesh. Jesus heard that loud and clear. But that's the enemy's strategy over and over and over to try to make us ignorant of what he's doing. And then the third thing, strategy number three, is infiltration. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, it says, Do not give the devil a foothold, because the foothold becomes the stronghold. The devil is not passive-aggressive. In fact, he coordinates his troops to attack constantly. One day, there was a pastor... And the devil came to the pastor in a dream. And the devil said, I want to invite you to my convention. The pastor said, you've got to be kidding me. If I come to your convention, I'm going to know your strategy. I'm going to know what you're doing. The devil says, I don't mind if you know my strategy. Because even if you know my strategy, even if the whole world knew my strategy, it's still going to work. Because they want. He said, okay, I'll come, and I'll take notes. So as the devil was addressing all of his demons, he stood up to the podium and he said, here is our 12-point attack. 
Number one, they should come up here. Keep them busy with non-essentials. Keep them busy with non-essentials. We're preaching this on Super Bowl Sunday. As much as I love football, as much as I love all that, I love our veterans more, and I don't know if I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl today. But it's a non-essential. You know, as much as I love sports, I can get so involved in sports, so involved in drama, so much on, but essentially it's not a it's not, it's not helping or growing my life anyway. It's just entertainment. Keep them busy with non-essentials. Petty arguments. Right fights. How many of you get in right fights? You know? When, when, when you're right, and, and, and you know, man, I tell you, our family, we are totally trying to attack this because we always, no, 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 you're wrong, no, no. Ourselves over being right that we had honeycomb for breakfast and not Cheerios. <laughs> Who cares what you had for breakfast? <laughs> Number two, tempt them to overspend and go into debt. Spending money that we don't have to impress people who don't care. Number three, make them work long hours. To maintain empty lifestyles. When I was a roofer, we were working long hours. And we were getting overtime. And I was saving for mission trips. So I, I signed on for all the things I could because I, um, I wanted to go to Canada. We were doing a lot of missions in Canada. But my buddy of mine, who was the other short, stocky guy who carried the, the uh, plywood up the ladder, uh, I said, what are you, you, you going to do all year? He said, you know what I'm going to do? Yeah, I've got like three or four weeks of wine tasting, and I can't wait to just go wine tasting. I'm like, I can understand a night of it, but frankly, I think I get bored after an hour of it, three weeks of it, you know? There's just that sense of, you know, uh, make them work long hours to maintain empty lifestyles. Number four, discourage them from spending time with family. Because when homes disintegrate, there is no refuge from work. Well, I tell you, after a busy day at work, the most dangerous time I'm a driver is when I'm coming home. I want to get home so bad, I can't wait to get through the door and hear, Daddy, and have the kids come running and just plant one on my wife. <laughs> anyway. So, uh, boy, the devil just loves to disintegrate the home so that none of that is there. So that you work and you stress and you come home. And what happens? More work and stress is waiting for you. And there's no refuge from our work. Number five, overstimulate their minds with television and computers so that they can't hear God speaking to them. Oh, come on now. It better get really quiet. This is where you should all go really quiet because this is true for all of us. Right? How many of you? Except for some of you who don't like TV or computers. But for, for the majority of us, how many times does TV, computers, cell phones, apps, video games, everything went out over having a quiet moment and reconnecting with the Holy Spirit? Number six, fill their coffee tables and nightstands with newspapers and magazines so that they do not have time to read their Bible. This one's working. It's endemic. In 20, the year 2009, they did a study of Christians who read their Bible. 
80% of people who call themselves Christians do not read their Bible. 57% of pastors do not read their Bible except to prepare for the message. That's staggering how many distractions we have these days. Number seven, flood their mailbox with sweepstakes and promotions and get rich quick schemes. Keep them chasing material things. 90% of lottery winners, when they receive their check, say that they're going to donate to charity. You know how many do? 10%. Oh, there's a lot of us say, man, Lord, if I won the lottery, I would do all these things and give all this money away and I'd be the philanthropist of the world. Once you get that check and it's in the bank, how quickly things change. I'm going to Hawaii. I'm buying a yacht. We're going to get a mansion. We're going to, and pretty soon, it just, that's what happens. Number eight, put glamorous models on TV and magazine covers to keep them focused on their outward appearance. That way, they'll be dissatisfied with themselves and their mates. I don't need to say a word about that one. Number nine, make sure couples are too exhausted for physical intimacy. That way, they'll be tempted to look elsewhere. Moving right along. <laughs> Number ten, emphasize Santa and the Easter Bunny and divert them from the real meaning of the holiday. You know, what is the real meaning of Christmas? Jesus, yes. <laughs> but what, 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 what one sentence, Emmanuel, what does that mean? What's the real meaning of that? God is what? God is with us, right? What's the real meaning of Easter? That God has saved us, right? God is with us and God has saved us. When you think of Santa Claus, it's get presents. When you think of the Easter Bunny, I don't know what you think of. What is it? What? You know, eggs? Candy? Chocolate? Anyway, yeah. number 11. Involve them in good causes so that they do not have time for eternal causes. And number 12. And Satan winked at the pastor. He said, this is the one we rely on the most. Make them sufficient in themselves. Keep them busy working in their own strength. They will all eventually wear down. Satan's goal is to get so many things in our lives that we do not have time for God. One time, uh, at the end of a message I was preaching up in, in Seattle's coma, I had a lady come up to me, and she said, we need to go in the prayer room now. We have a little room off to the side, and it's where people could yell at you over your message. <laughs> no, you're supposed to pray, but it seems like 9 out of 10, that's what happened to me. And so she comes in there and she goes, Pastor Tom, I am so busy, I don't even have time to pee. I kind of chuckled. She goes, no, 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 I'm not kidding. I purposely don't drink water. I purposely stay a little dehydrated so that I don't have to go to the bathroom because I don't have time to go to the bathroom. Just, I can't sit for 30 seconds and pee. I'm kind of going, oh man, she just, you know, she goes, I need you to tell me, is there another way to beat the devil besides having to connect with God? I, I could hear it in her voice. She just doesn't have time for God. 
So we start going over through her life, and on and on. She's like, isn't there a pill? I, somebody told me there was a pill that you could take, and you know, just kind of, you know. Man, I wish there was, but but the, the devil. I said, lady, the devil's invisible. You can't even see it. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't get tired. He's invisible. There's only one person who can who has ever beaten the devil, and you're not it. And you never will be it. So no, there is no other option. Either you win through him, or you're not going to win. So whatever you've got to do to your schedule so that you can not only beat the devil and pee, you need to do that. I said, fight trying to be a lone ranger. New moms can really struggle with this. Fight trying to be alone. You know, if there's anything I can give you this morning, it'll be this. If I, if those twelve things just described you, you want to know how to beat that? I'll tell you right now. Make a decision right now not to beat it by yourself. Not to beat it by yourself. Some of you are like, you know what? Praying is good. I think praying would be a good thing to do. And then you know what you try to do? You try to do it yourself. Number 12, Satan was right. You try to say, you know what? On my work break, I'm, I'm going to break out a Bible app and read it. And what happens? The devil always sends somebody to distract you during your work break, doesn't he? Okay, the first thing I do when I wake up, what happens? One of your kids or something keeps you up till midnight, and all of a sudden you wake up five minutes before you have to go to work. Breaks to happen. Yeah? Whenever we try to do this stuff on our own, the enemy goes, oh, man, that is another sucker, another one born every minute. But when we start employing people to help us, for seven years faithfully, I was able to pray for the church. For some reason, the last six months, things were just getting in the way. And for about six months, I forgot to pray for the church every week. It was, it'd become, I'd become a habit for me not to pray for the church. So finally, what I do, I call up Pastor Bud. I said, Bud... I am scheduling a meeting with you. Why? Just to pray for the church. And I'm sure you're thinking, can't you do that on your own? I could do that on my own, but if I make an appointment and I know you're going to be there, I know I'm going to be there. What is it called? It's called accountability. Yeah? Meeting with someone every week. Hey, let's pray. Meeting with someone every week. Let's read the Bible for a few minutes. When left to our own, I think the devil's already won. But when we begin to bring people into this fight of allowing our relationship with God to grow and flourish through our community of people, that's why at a minimum I come to church on Sunday. At a minimum. I don't know how people who come to church once a month and have no accountability have any victory in the devil over their lives. I don't know. Maybe they're just better than me. Maybe they're more spiritual than I am. I don't know. At a minimum, come to church every Sunday. At a minimum, get into a good Bible study. At a minimum, have a friend that I can go to and puke all my sins to. At a minimum, have these things. Because if left to my own, I probably either I probably won't do it, or the enemy will send in something to sabotage it. But when I got an appointment, boy, it's amazing how I'm willing to keep it. Because it's not just me anymore, it's that other person too is involved. That is how God set up our lives. It's 
why we have a church. That's why we have a community of people. He never intended us to beat the devil all by ourselves. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of heaven. There's us. And when we come together, even just two of us, what does the Bible say? Jesus is there. Amen?